everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansbury, and we're continuing with our election education series today. And we're going to be talking all about the District 9 Austin City Council election. Now, if you're not a city council district map expert, (laughs) District 9, it covers most of downtown Austin, as well as UT, Cherrywood, and Hyde Park. And you can figure out which council district you live in by visiting austintexas.gov forward slash government. Anyway, in case you missed our previous election episodes, here's a quick recap of all the things you should know about the upcoming local elections in Austin. First is that election day is November 8th, and early voting starts on October 24th. And this year we have five Austin City Council seats on the ballot and a pretty competitive mayor's race as well that we'll all be voting for. And council candidates in Austin, they don't run with any official political party affiliation. You can, of course, pretty easily figure out which party they align with, but it means that there's no primary election. And so instead of just seeing one Republican and one Democrat on the ballot, you'll be seeing a lot of different names. And District 9 is one of three council races this this year where there is no incumbent running. Uh, Kathy Tobo, who has served as council member of District 9 for the past 12 years, is leaving at the end of 2022 after serving two terms under our city's current district council system, which is called 10-1, and then four years as a council member before that, when our council seats were still elected at large. Um, And so now a whopping eight candidates are running to replace her in one of the more competitive council elections this cycle. And we're going to be hearing more from those candidates in a second. But before we get to the interviews, I just wanted to share a few of my tips for things to listen for, because I know that with so many candidates running, it can feel a bit overwhelming to sift through them all and decide which candidate you're actually going to vote for. So here are a few of my general tips. Tip one, uh, listen for the issues and priorities that candidates bring up on their own, sometimes without me even asking. This can really help you figure out what's important to them. Tip two, Um, it's really easy for a candidate to say they're upset because Austin is so unaffordable, Um, but do they actually have a plan to do something about it? Listen for the specifics and for candidates who have clearly taken the time to think about an issue. And tip number three, think about what you value and then see if a candidate's experience and qualifications matches those values. So for example, maybe you're looking for someone who has deep roots in the community and volunteers a lot. Or maybe you want someone with experience in government who knows how things work and can just hit the ground running on day one. Or maybe you prefer more of an outsider candidate who can bring a fresh skill set to City Hall. Basically, the idea with all of these tips is to just think about your values and priorities and then find a candidate who matches them best. Okay, let's get to the interviews already. Oh, and for each of these interviews, I did ask the candidates to participate in a little show-and-tell activity. Uh, Basically, I asked them to bring one item of sentimental value to the interview, something that showed who they are as real human people, and then to share it with all of us. So you're going to hear that in the interviews. And if you want to actually see photos of what they brought, you can check that out on our Instagram page, which is at the underscore Austin underscore common. Okay, for real this time, on to the interviews. Uh, First up is Zena Mitchell. All right, I'm here with Zena, and we're talking city council. Let's just get right into it. Um, who are you? Why are you running? Um, my name is Zena Mitchell. I'm running for Austin City Council District 9 because I've lived here for 30 years and watched the city change from being a friendly, user-friendly place to live to a place that's no longer that sustainable to live here. 
Yeah, you mentioned sustainable. I saw on your website, it seems like climate and the environment are really important issues to you. Do you want to talk a little bit more about why you value those and, and the way you might prioritize those issues if you were elected to city council? Yes, uh, the city of Austin has done a tremendous job recycling, single stream recycling. Since I've been here, it's evolved from separating your glass, aluminum and cardboard on the sidewalk to single stream recycling to curbside composting. So we've been a leader in that for a long time. The city of Austin has committed to zero waste or diverting 90% of waste into a landfill by 2040. Um, so I think we're poised to take on climate control and reducing CO2 emissions from gas, from single vehicular cars. We voted for Project Connect, which should be completed by 2029. And um, I think we have to move our city towards mass transit and not and get away from single vehicle driving. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty critical. Even just a voluntary no idling at a parking spot in the city um, would make a big difference. Yeah, it seemed like you're... Um, a big proponent of Project Connect, correct? And 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 are and wanting to think about different ways we could explore transportation in our city. I saw on your website you had written a lot about I-35 as well. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of your larger vision for transportation in Austin? Yes, I'm definitely against um, expanding IH-35, even if it is cap and stitch. I feel like increasing roads is giving, it's like giving heroin to a drug addict. As long as we keep building the roads, we're going to keep having more and more cars. So just because we're going to bury, I mean, cap and stitch sounds like we're embroidering and it sounds lovely, but when you look it up, it's about digging into the earth and covering up the freeway. I just don't think that's a viable option. And why are we going to, so I would rather put all the money into mass transit and slowly but surely remove cars from certain areas in the central city. Right. And things like maybe like downtown and things like that, like private vehicles. Definitely. So we'd start with the central area of around the Capitol where we would eliminate private vehicles from the downtown area. So we could try a mass transit system that doesn't have to compete with single with cars, vehicular traffic. And then we'd start to expand it. So basically to get into the city, you would park your car, hop on a transit and get to work. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd like to invest, I would like to invest more in that than cap and stitch and IH35. I'd also like to divert most of the non-local uh, trucks to the toll roads, make it an incentive for the freight trucks to get off the toll roads. Totally understand that we have to have trucks, but if we could divert them to the toll roads, I think that would help free up the traffic that's on IH35 so it could be more local traffic. I wanna shift gears slightly and talk about housing. Um, obviously housing affordability, huge issue in Austin. You know, Pretty much every candidate I've talked to has flagged that as a key issue, but in looking through your website, um, it seemed like you had some, I would say, less traditional ideas for, for housing affordability. Do you want to share a little bit about uh, some policy ideas you have or what you would like to see happening at the city? Definitely. There's some real reasons why we have affordability, we, we're having an affordability crisis. That's happening throughout the United States, I think. But 
when I started looking into it, it's not just supply and demand. There's some, there's some real reasons as for instance, investors, people that come to the city of Austin buy, or they don't even come here. They buy a home cash unseen for cash. Then they flip the home and make a pretty huge profit in less than a year, sometimes two years. That's driving up the price of homes. We've seen that in the neighborhood that we lived in. So I would limit investor profits. In the Mueller, where I live, we have an affordable home program. Um, here, if you qualify for the affordable home program, when you sell your house, you are limited to 2% profit on the sale of your house. So if you can, if we can limit the profit on low-income families, we can limit the profit on investors. The other thing is because of home ownership in the city of Austin has become out of reach for so many of us, I'm, I live in an apartment, I would like the opportunity to purchase my apartment. So there could be a middle ground to purchasing a home that's over a half a million dollars. Maybe we could start purchasing our, an, our apartments to build equity because traditionally that's how middle-class papers, people, teachers, and legal assistants, which I am, have earned, have, have that's been our traditional investment is real estate. We in Imagine Austin 20 years ago, they asked us how we wanted to see Austin grow. And it was high density. So a lot of apartments are going up. That's that's fine with me. I like living in an apartment, but I would also like the opportunity to build some equity at the same time. So rent to own programs yes. that the city could my, be involved with. Yeah. Yes, my, and so my, and when you yeah, and when you talk about the, you know, limiting investor profits component, I mean, obviously with affordable housing, the reason they're able to do that is because usually it's city-owned property or it's owned by a nonprofit or there's a tax credit involved that does that. I would imagine if the city were to try and pass something that would limit investor-owned profits, they would be sued immediately or the legislature would uh, vote it down. Is that the kind of thing that you're, you would welcome or be willing to push again? You know, I think there's two, yes. mo I think there's two ideas about doing things that you know are probably illegal or that the legislature is going to come in and, and overturn, which is it's not worth our time and it's a waste of energy and we should do things that are actually um you know, instead of tying up legal fees, or we should just do it and see what happens. I guess I'm curious, you know, where you see some of these ideas that seem pretty likely that they could be illegal. Yeah, I definitely don't think that's the reason not to bring them up. I think that we had a bag, just a simple thing. We had a bag ban in the city of Austin that I think made a huge difference in our community. We didn't see, I regularly pick up work in, you know, pick up parks. I think we see less and less plastic bags. And then we had the state override it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try it. We should definitely try it. And yes, real estate is king here in the city of Austin. But the other thing is, oh, real estate ownership is king in the state of Texas. Yes. But the other thing is, we, we provide a homestead exemption for people that live in their homes. They get a reduction on their taxes. So I think that through that angle, Travis County angle, we could limit the amount of profit, the, the amount of profit people can make based on the percentage of profit people can make based on how long they've lived in their home. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about another big thing that I saw on your website, uh, which is education. Um, you work in the school district or you have worked in schools before? Yes. Um, 
you know, I think this is, um, you, you talk a lot about education. I think this is an area where maybe traditionally one would think, what is a city council member really doing talking about, or a city council candidate talking about education because that's AISD's job. But it, on your website, you had a lot of ideas about ways you feel like the city could collaborate more with the school district or ways to improve our educational system here in Austin. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, my husband and I came to Austin, Texas for because we our kids were 30 years ago, our kids were five, and we were looking for a community to, 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 to set down roots. Our kids all went, we started at Maplewood Elementary. That's a pretty well-known school in the school district. Haven't seen that school really duplicated as far as the diversity. Um, so I don't, our school system is failing a lot of people. Um, my husband was a teacher. I was a teacher. My son was a teacher. None of us are teachers anymore in the city of Austin. So I, that is true. It's traditionally hands-off. But I have found support for a, where a mayor and a city council, we may not have, be able to influence the actual policy, school district policy, but we can support the families that attend public schools. Hmm. And I think that's a huge difference. And I think that's something that we could, we could do. The city of Austin, and I think the city of Austin, I think AISD could pop, would be willing to listen if we would if we were there to help since they are experiencing a crisis too in decline of enrollment with teachers and students. Helping so students were, and families like healthcare or childcare or, you know, what, what do you mean by help? With, with childcare, after, before school programs and after school okay. programs, also the teacher, the teacher home buying program. There's a few of those mm -hmm. throughout the country. That's another one where I lived in the community where I taught, which was, Northeast, Reagan. Um, my son lived in the community where he taught, which was Runberg. So I think that's, I think that makes a huge difference. I saw my student, I taught high school at Northeast early college high school. And I saw my students at Sonic. I saw my students in my neighborhood mm -hmm. and they saw me. I think that's, that's pretty critical. So I think the city of Austin could support teachers in that way also with yeah. housing, with being able to live in the city that they work in. Mm -hmm. Um, and before we close, we're doing a show and tell with our candidates to get to know you a little bit better, know who you are as a person, why you're running. What's your item for us today? Kind of describe it. Um, my item is my electrical overalls. Um, when I was an electrician, I was a journeyman electrician in this town. Another unique thing about this city. Um, so I had my first pair of Carhartt overalls and cool. um, I presented um, women in in the trades for maybe five years to in a program at UT called Expanding Your Horizons. And so I have five patches sewn across my overalls, my electrical overalls, and it's something I'm very proud of. And that was Ina Mitchell. Next up, we're going to hear from Zohaib Zokadri. All right, I am here with Zoe. We're talking city council. Let's just dive right in. Who are you? Why are you running? Yeah, my name is Zaheb Zokadri, uh, running for Austin City Council District 9. Um, I'm running out of a deep sense of, of, of service with empathy. Uh, you know, when I first started school at UT here um, in, in Austin, I was a bio-pre-med student. I saw my parents in medicine as immigrants to this country, and that's how they kind of give back to their community. 
Uh, and truthfully, that's what I, that's what I thought my uh, path was going to be. But when I first moved to Austin, uh, the one thing that I noticed in the city was our unhoused population, right? Folks suffering on the streets, and I couldn't make sense of it as a you know as a teenager or someone new to the big city, uh, because where my family's from, we see a lot of unhoused folks in, in Pakistan on the streets. There's so much corruption and so much poverty in those uh, in, in that country. Uh, but I couldn't make sense out in a, in a city, in a, in a state, in a country so wealthy, you know, as Austin, as Texas, as the United States is, is how are people suffering? How are, how are people dying? Um, so that made me kind of pivot in the work that I, I wanted to do. So I was no longer a bio-pre-med student kind of after that. Uh, and, I, and, and I knew I wanted to go into some sort of public service. Uh, and I thought that was through government. Uh, and, I, and I have worked in city governments in the past. I've done work at the Capitol and I've done a lot of advocacy work. But why I'm specifically running is because, um, you know, I, th I think we saw during the pandemic, the winter storm, just this general lack of equity that we see in Austin, right? The Austin experience, the Austin label of being a liberal or progressive or forward thinking city doesn't always run true, depending on what part of the city you're in, uh, depending on, you know, where you're from, or what you look like. And I don't think that should be the case. I think Austin is a beautiful city and it should work for everyone. And I think we need to tackle uh, our housing crisis or uh, this lack of equitable transit, a climate crisis that is, is creeping everywhere uh, you go in this country, in this world, uh, but also just fight for general equity, uh, making sure that everyone has a seat at the table, that everyone's voice is heard, regardless of how long they've been in this city, whether they were born in this city, you know, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about homelessness first, since you mentioned it as kind of like a catalyst for you. Um, how how do you feel like the city has responded to homelessness so far and what do you feel like we could be doing differently in the future and and I wonder if your experience too working at different in different cities and I know you've worked on some campaigns all over mm -hmm. the country as well like have you seen other people respond to other cities respond to this better than us like what kind of lessons learned do you do you have going into this yeah the question kind of kind of different different yeah places. a bunch of avenues yeah bunch of questions um, so I, you know, I commend the city on the work they've done, but I, I always, I'm, I'm of the mindset more should, more needs to be done and should be done. I think as a city, as a society, you're judged on how you treat your most vulnerable populations. And in that case, I think we've, we've failed. Um, I, I personally think it starts off with a housing first approach, right? Because you have these unhoused folks who with the passing of Prop V didn't help their livelihood. And if, if you allow folks to publicly camp, I don't, I don't think anyone would say that's a just and moral. I think getting these folks into housing is, is extremely important. And from there kind of attacking the different vices that might be affecting them, whether it be uh, substance abuse or mental health illness, like making sure that they're taken care of. I almost feel like there's a third group of unhoused folks in, in Austin and that's the working force. So it's folks who might be working in an HEB or Walgreens, and just because of the housing crisis in the city, they're unable to, you know, properly live in the city. They might be camped out in the woods in their car or in a tent, and and, I, and I've met folks like that. So I think there's just so many different, uh, you know, situations going on with our unhoused population, and we need to approach each one in you know the unique state that it is. Uh, in terms of what I've seen while I've worked at other city governments, so I, I worked at the city of Kyle, but I didn't, I truthfully didn't deal with when I was there and I also was at the city of Houston but I also truthfully didn't deal with there I know the city of Houston's done a lot of great stuff but specifically in terms of my experience when I worked at the Texas Capitol I worked a lot with the Texas Homeless Network 
I got to talk with a lot of really smart, brilliant people. And I think there's things that are being done in other cities, uh, not even in Texas, but uh, cities like Miami and Chicago, examples I heard there were how they built housing on top of libraries because a lot of unhoused folks already frequent libraries. And then also, so allowed allowing those folks to, to live there, um, but then also providing mental health and substance abuse um, um, options at, at, at at those libraries and then allowing those folks to use the library's resources uh, to apply for jobs uh, to study for a GRE uh, sorry a GED or you know whatever it may be in that in that scenario uh, but also allowing folks to, to then work in the library and then make some sort of income so you know Austin's such a beautiful place with so many creatives and so many um, really bright people that just kind of always think outside of the box so I, I'm, I'm I have no doubt that if we if we come together, we can think of some creative way to uh, take care of our unhoused population. Yeah, um, I want to shift a little bit to talk about just affordable housing in general. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, there's been a lot of conversation around our land development code and if we're building enough. And um, I wonder, you know, it's. I guess we'll just start like at the beginning, which is what is your general approach to housing affordability if you were elected? You know, what kind of uh, policies and priorities would you really want to focus on? Yeah, I mean, you know, just from a, the human aspect, I, I think Austin's, you know, such a such a beautiful place. I've, I've lived, you know, I'm the kid of immigrants. I've, uh, you know, I was born in New Jersey. I lived in New York, but then I've been in Texas for the past 20 years, Austin for the past 13. And like, <clears throat> sorry, and I can say Austin is so uniquely uh, different and, and special because of how Austinites kind of come together and inform this community, you know, Austinites who have made me feel, you know, I've never felt like I was lacking or, or I was an, you know, othered being in this community. And, and, it, and it says a lot about the people that make Austin what it is. And I think making sure that we keep people in this city is really important. So my general approach to, to housing, uh, I mean, I guess from, from a bigger picture, we need to look at a rewrite of our land development code. Uh, it's, it's been what it is since 1984. Uh, and it's truthfully leaving a lot of people behind and pushing a lot of people uh, outside of the city, people who, who make Austin the beautiful and unique city it is, people who, who give so much to Austin, whether it be our teachers or musicians or firefighters or EMS workers or students. But I think on the, uh, um, you know, in, in the short term, I, I think it's looking at, you know, building, uh, you know, I mean, building off of the city's uh, affordability unlock program, the VMU2, uh, looking at uh, building more um, you know, duplexes and fourplexes, giving more autonomy to homeowners and, and allowing them to build ADUs. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're in a housing crisis. We need more housing, but specifically we need more affordable housing um, because we're losing a lot of really great folks. And I think there's so many, you know, going back to my answer about uh, homelessness, I think there's so many really bright creative folks in the city that I think we can do creative things to to approach that situation. I mean, one thing uh, that I've, I've talked to when I've, I've talked to folks, um, you know, teachers and, and folks at school boards uh, is building housing on, on these school properties um, for our teachers and, and, you know, making sure that they don't have to either commute from afar or have to live in situations that they would rather not live in. Um, so. I, I think we need to really tackle it. I, I think the next four years are going to be vital. I don't pretend everything's going to be solved magically in, in four years, uh, but I do think we're at a we're at a point where we need to start getting you know all, everything on track. 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we talked about housing and homelessness. What's another key priority for you that if you were elected, you would really want to spend a lot of your time and energy focusing on? Yeah, I mean, I think everything that the two points you mentioned about to say, everything also just ties to this general lack of equity. And I would say, you know, transit, you know, I'm a big fan of Project Connect. I think we need more transit in the city, whether it be, you know, bus routes or or rail. Um, But I also want to see more equitable, equitable transit. Uh, and I think as a District 9 member, I, I will you know, always advocate for my community, but I, I think it's important to uplift voices in communities that might not have a voice or might not, or might need a second voice to come in truthfully. And there's a lot of folks uh, you know, on the east side, a lot of folks that live in um, neglected neighborhoods truthfully, um, a lot of folks who live in you know, certain communities of color uh, where there is an equitable transit. You know, there aren't bus routes, there aren't the rail doesn't go through them, right? And you have people who might not have a, a you know, mode of transportation. Uh, and, you know, that affects everything when, you know, when it comes to their work, you know, their school, where their kid goes to school, how their kid goes to school and back. Um, and a lot of these communities truthfully aren't, are, you know, it's not just transit deserts that they're suffering from, it's medical, it's food, um, it's cultural deserts, right? So I think it's really important to, to connect this city uh, and all the people that are a part of it in, in an equitable fashion, right? Because just because, you know, I could get, I could leave my apartment and I could walk a block anyway, and I'm hitting a bus or I'm hitting the rail, uh, but that's not everyone's, um, you know, reality. And I think it's important to have accessible public transit. And, and I think that leads to us not being as car dependent city, which is, you know, a plus when it comes to you know, the horrific environmental impacts that we might see. Um, with being more, being a car dependent city. So uh, yeah, I would say equitable transit would be a big thing. Mm -hmm. And then before we close, we're doing our little show and tell activity, get to know a little bit more about our candidates. What's your item for us today? Uh, when you when you mentioned it, you had you had said it, something that that means a lot to me or has played a factor. So I can't show everything, but you could see the, you could see the chair I'm sitting in. You could see Uh the, the shelf in the back. And then the desk that I'm that I'm using, it was my dad's. My dad passed away nine years ago, uh, and after he passed away, um, we kind of, um, you know, he was a physician, he was an oncologist, but you know, we had to remove everything out of his office. So I wanted to to keep his stuff. Uh, it obviously uh, very much is a is something that just means a lot to me because one of the last conversations I had with my dad before he passed away was about not going into medicine anymore and, and going into another line of work. And I think his encouragement uh, and his support meant a lot to me. And, you know, if he was the candidate, I think he'd be a, a hell lot better of a candidate than I am. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm running to make sure that uh, everyone in this city has a fighting chance, but I'm also running uh, for him. And that was Zohaib Zokadri. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Greg Smith. Hey, I'm here with Greg. We're talking all things city council. You know, let's just dive right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? So I'm Greg Smith, and I am, my wife and I have been a, uh, a resident of Austin for over 40 years, and um, a few well, probably two years ago, I started contemplating running for city council. And, um, you know, a lot of people tried to talk me out of it. And, <laughs> um, 
You know, Austin has been a place for uh, Morgan and I, and uh, that has been so good to us that we um, we really want to try to do the best we can to give back to a city again that's been so good to us. Uh, when the camping ban was lifted, it really motivated me to try to understand more about Austin politics and also motivated me to uh, try to change the, the leadership of Austin. And um, I, I'll, I'll admit I was a, a you know, kind of a, 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 a one issue candidate there in the beginning. And what I've found out that we're going to discuss, there are multiple crisis situations, I think, that Austin that we're in, you know, affordability, homelessness, public safety, to name a few. But I've also discovered that I think that there's a leadership crisis that I believe my skill set will lend to solving some of the leadership issues that I believe exist in Austin. And that's what's motivated me to, uh, you know, to learn as much as I can, as quick as I can about these issues so that I can represent not only all of the people of District 9, but also represent the majority of the people in Austin. Yeah. Um, and so here, here we are you know, a few months into this, this, this project, and I've really enjoyed it. I'm glad I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of those issues. We'll start with homelessness, because that's what you said, you know, kind of brought you into this conversation in the first place. Um, obviously, we've had a lot of back and forth on this issue as a city, as you mentioned, city council voted to overturn our camping ban, then we had a um, ballot initiative that voters decided to reinstate the camping ban. Now there's been a lot of conversation and debate around enforcement and funding for homelessness services and what we should do next. What do you feel like city council can be doing differently in order to make some real progress on this issue? Two, two things. I think that, that, that with the amount of money that we are going to spend to try to solve this issue, we have to have the experts at the table and we have to be partners with those experts. And those experts include uh, you, you, all of the organizations that have been managing the homeless situation in Austin for many, many years. And the second most important part of managing this and trying to eliminate homelessness in my estimation is, is making sure that everybody that is touching the process to eliminate homelessness in Austin is held accountable. Mm -hmm. It's really, really important that if we are going to move quick to, to maneuver through this crisis situation, that those that are not performing as uh, advertised have to be removed or eliminated from the process. We just can't afford to waste time, waste money, and uh, not get help to those that need help. Um, what, what does accountability look like in this circumstance? 
Well, accountability just by definition is, is if you agree to do something and you're not doing it, then you need to be held accountable or more importantly, we have to change directions. So there's, there's not anything wrong with uh, not getting to a point where we thought we were with whatever program that we're discussing when it comes to homelessness. But there's a real problem if you choose not to change. Mm-hmm. And we've got to make sure that the game plan can change as the as the weeks and months and years goes goes by. But we if the, if you're not willing to change and say, gosh, we kind of we kind of made a mistake there. Let's don't go down that road anymore. Let's kind of move in a different direction to ensure that the results that we are wanting are produced. Mm-hmm. That is my definition of accountability. And that accountability holds true with all of the crisis situations inside of Austin. Right. I, I say this, I say this often, Amy. I, I I don't understand why a politician can't just raise their hand, any politician can't raise their hand and go, gosh, we just kind of got that one wrong and we need to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a, a an enormous issue with the leadership in Austin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think people are, are extremely forgiving. It's okay to make a mistake. It's not okay to continue to make the mistakes, especially at the expense of taxpayer dollars and the amount of money that's being spent for example, with the homeless situation. Let's talk about public safety a little bit. This is another issue where us as a community, we've, you know, we've gone some back and forth with this police budgets, the legislature intervened. Um, What would be your approach to public safety in particular? You know, the next city council, we're in the middle of a police negotiation contract. There's some questions about that, what should be included in it, things like pay, things like accountability. Also, there's questions over cadet classes, how many to have and funding for that. What would be your uh, your approach to some of these big issues if you were elected? It's the single biz- biggest issue that scares me. Uh, and I think it starts with repairing the relationship between the Austin City Council and uh, the police. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all seen the report uh, the employee result report uh, about the morale. We all of the candidates have have been uh, on a ride along or spoken to many many officers. We we have to start to put this relationship that we have with the police uh, more in the forefront. We have to we have to repair that. I, I'm really concerned that we're going to lose even more officers because of the lack of cadet classes that we've had over the last couple of years. I I, I believe at last check when I spoke with some folks inside of the department that, you know, there's something like 200 officers that are going to be uh, available to retire here Mm -hmm. in the real near future. And I, I mean, that math just doesn't, doesn't work for overall public safety. Um, 
Do you I'm, think I'm there's re- a way, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, do you okay. think there's a way as your? do you think there's a way to improve the morale of the police department while also maybe bringing about accountability measures or ensuring accountability, you know, because that was the initial concern, right, is that we don't have enough accountability measures. People in the community were upset about that. Is there a way to to make both happen or is it pay raises? Like, what do you have to do to, what can we do to improve morale without giving away everything? Do you know what I'm I saying? Think, I think there very much is a way to do that. And I think the way to do that is, is, is bring the leaders of those organizations that do have concerns with the police to the table and understand that everybody's got to sacrifice a little bit to repair this relationship. Because this, this relationship and having a fully staffed police force is, uh, is extremely important to every person inside of our community. This is a serious public safety issue that if not addressed, is going to continue to get worse and worse every single year, really every single month that goes by. And so mm-hmm. to answer your question, Amy, yes, I do believe there is a way to hold officers that are uh, that have a poor performance record accountable and, and terminate them. And, and I do believe there's also a way to repair the relationship that needs to be repaired between city government and the police. I I absolutely believe that. I I believe that is doable with the right leaders that are willing to, that are willing to bring all of these people together in a small room and say, I think we all have the ultimate same goal here. Nobody wants Austin to be less safe. Nobody. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, and and nobody in Austin wants the police to run roughshod over the citizens. So again, if you put the people in in place and say, look, we're going to have to maneuver this so that we can move forward for a better result. That's what I believe a real leader does in this type of situation. Let's end with your show and tell. We'll get to know you a little bit better here. All right. What did you bring for us today? I put on my favorite golf hat (laughs) with my my favorite local small business owner owned gym. And I brought, I brought, I've got my golf club. Usually when I do these zoom calls, I often hold my golf club and work on my grip. (laughs) I'm an ex for 25 years, I was in the golf business. I managed golf clubs. Oh, cool. And so, yes. And so golf has been an extremely big part of my life. Uh, I can tell you it, it without golf, there's no way that I would have known the, the people that I know right now. It's given me a lot of joy in life. And I just want people to play more golf. I grew up <laughs> here in Austin. I grew up here in Austin. And and uh, I played all the public golf courses. I played so many rounds of golf on all the public golf courses, thousands of rounds of golf since I was eight years old in Austin. And and uh, even if I don't get your vote, if you ever have any questions about golf and your golf swing, you can always <laughs> reach out to me, and I'd be happy to help you with your golf swing. And that was Greg Smith. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Joa Spearman. Okay, I'm here with Joa. We're talking city council. Um, let's go ahead and get right into it. Who are you? Why you're running? Great. Um, yeah, I mean, again, Joa Spearman. I, I often have to tell people it, my name is like Noah, but with a J. 
Um, and I'm running for city council district nine because we are at such a unique and critical time in Austin's history as a city. Um, we have tremendous opportunities. Obviously we're continuing to grow, um, continue to attract jobs, attract people and professionals here, but we also have a lot of issues around affordability, around equity, as we saw obviously during the pandemic, especially, um, and also around, um, you know, sustainability around mobility. We have just so many fundamental things that we need our city council to not only react to, but ideally proactively plan for. And so I want to bring kind of my skill set as an entrepreneur to the table. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about things like housing affordability, what do you feel like you could bring to the table that might be different from what city council has been doing or, uh, you know, I feel like this is a common problem with Austinites, right? We're frustrated, we're annoyed with what's happening with affordability, but if we feel a little stuck. So, you know, what what do you feel like you could bring to the table or what policies would you advance around affordability in Austin? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, for me, again, being an entrepreneur with all my, every business I've ever done has been very community led. And, and also I'm very involved in the community um, on nonprofit boards and whatnot, Austin PBS, Zach Theater. So all of my work has been very rooted in community. And I think that's something that's been lost for years in the conversation we've had in Austin about mm -hmm. housing. Our conversation usually is about real estate. It's usually about preferences around single family homes or high rise multifamily. Um, and we've, we've ignored the very people that we're doing, having this conversation for. And so we haven't talked enough about the impact of housing and, and lack of affordability for artists and musicians or nurses and teachers. Um, and so as a result, we have, we're losing teachers, we're losing paramedics, um, we're losing our artists and musicians. And so those are the very people that we need to be codifying new land use policies for so that we can make sure that they feel like this is an affordable place where they can have quality of life as well. Yeah. How do you feel like we can build more housing for, for those folks? Because that's been a constant refrain. It's like teachers can't afford to live here, even if they teach in AISD and firefighters and, you know, musicians, what can we do to provide housing for kind of those folks in particular? Yeah. I, there are two specific things that I am really excited to try to do. One is I think that we need to start unlocking some more of the city land um, to build city owned land, city owned land, um, to, to build workplace housing. Hmm. I think that, you know, we need, we need police officers. We need that the police department, the fire department, the EMS department be fully staffed. And, and part of our ability as a city to do that is going to hinge on housing. And so I think, um, partnering with, with developers who are interested in, in, in partnering with the city to build workplace housing for our essential workers, whether that's teachers, nurses, um, it could also be, Partnering with companies, you know, like I think Oracle is an example of a company that's built some housing or purchased some housing for their, some of their employees. And we need to be relying on some of these bigger companies to come in and do that as well, understanding that affordability is an issue for some of their maybe entry level employees as well. Or if not for the employees directly, maybe it's for the essential workers that their employees rely on. Um, so that's something I want to I do. And then also, um, I, fundamentally, you know, uh, people confuse affordable housing with housing affordability. To me, hmm. affordable housing is a lever that the government can pull, um, like the, the affordable housing bond or anti-displacement funds with Project Connect. At best, maybe that's going to produce thousands of units, maybe six, 7,000 units. But housing affordability is about the entire city. It's very relative. And so that's something that we need the private market to partner with us to, to accomplish. And so I think we have some affordable housing goals, but I also think that we need to codify some updated land, land use policies that allow us to accommodate housing affordability. And incentivize, I guess, more development by those private developers. 
Yeah, I mean, we need we need you know duplexes, fourplexes, eight plexes. I mean, I grew up. I'm the youngest of three boys in a single mother household. My mom worked made everywhere from fourteen thousand, I think, to twenty seven thousand dollars a year when I was a kid, and raising three boys alone. And we lived in the working class duplex neighborhood, and you don't see many neighborhoods like that or communities like that in, in Austin, in part because. Um, we have such stringent compatibility standards that prevent things like that from being developed. And so I think we need to both approach the uh, compatibility standards with an eye towards affordability. Um, but I also think that things like, re- you know, reducing the parking requirements could allow us to recapture much needed land um, to develop more housing. So it's, it's a little bit of both. We need the private mm-hmm. market to step up and, and build some of the things we need. But we also need the city to step up and city council in particular to step up and bring the housing policies into the 21st century that we're all experiencing these affordability issues in. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about music, the arts. Um, That's an area where you have a lot of, uh, you know, background in, like you mentioned, you've served on quite a few boards and commissions around that. I think you're married to an Austin musician as well. Um, We talked a little bit about housing, but what else can we can we bring to the table as city council in order to help out our creative class. Yeah, I mean, I am very proud that I served on the Austin Music Commission. I was the vice chair of the Music Commission when we designated Red River as a cultural district. Um, I got really familiar with the city kind of machinations back then over 10 years ago. And then I've served on the board of Austin PBS, which owns Austin City Limits a TV show. And then also now I'm on the board of Zach Theater. So I'm really involved in the arts and cultural scene in Austin. And I think people, think of this stuff as a nice to have like oh it's mm-hmm. nice that we have live music it's nice that we have the arts but but austin historically proves that it's not a nice to have this is a key cog in the wheel of ec- economic growth and vitality for this community this city so it's really important that we don't just treat live music capital of the world as this marketing tagline mm-hmm. that we use to drive tourism we need to actually support the artists and musicians we're talking about here so for me i think housing is obviously a big part of that but i also i've, I've written a paper about um, recommending that the city of Austin take an active role in, I think, purchasing at least one, if not two music venues. Hmm. Every every year we're learning about a new venue that's closing. Um, I, I honestly think that the city of Austin should step in and consider um, either doing a land swap or uh, purchasing a venue on Red River and have ma- maintaining the ground lease and then maybe partnering with a developer um, much like what we saw with the W and Block 21, where they build ACL Live. So maybe we maybe we we have a city bi- venue that's more of like a listening room, and it's 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 owned by the city, but it's operated by I'm imagining like Austin nonprofits like Ham or Sims Foundation. It's a revenue mm-hmm. driver for those organizations, um, and then maybe there's housing that's built on top of it. Um, and so I think we need to do things like that. I mean, it's people don't realize that a venue like Red Rocks. Red Rocks in outside of Denver is yeah. owned, that, that, that's that's government owned, you know, hmm. and it's it's amazing that here we are in the quote unquote live music capital of the world. And yet we haven't thought that creatively about how we can fund this this ecosystem. We've, we've tended to say, well, we'll let the private market kind of determine what our live music identity is. And, and the reality is when you talk to musicians, they realize they're they're bearing the the weight of that. And so the city, I think, needs to take a much more active role in supporting those industries and artists. Yeah, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk some about resiliency. That was something that when I was looking through your website, it seems like you were talking a lot about and passionate about. Obviously, we've had struggles with this in the past few years in Austin. Um, what do you feel like we can be doing better as a city when it comes to resiliency, climate, you know, all these issues intertwine? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's funny. I when I came here to Austin to go to the University of Texas. I'm originally from Colleen, so not too far. 
um, moved here to Austin, went to UT. And I, when I graduated, I took a job at FEMA. So I ended up, I actually, my first job out of college was working for FEMA huh. so right there in emergency management. And so I saw up close in the aftermath of Katrina, Hurricane Rita, the lack of resilience planning in a lot of municipalities and cities. And so for me, this is, it's, it's important both on the city side, but it's also important on the, on the individual side. Uh, and so after Winter Storm Uri, you know, I was out there driving, delivering water and food to hundreds of Austinites. And, and it just reminded me that too often our city benefits from the good fortune and kindness of regular people, even though, even if city council hasn't itself done all the work it could do to prevent certain unfortunate circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even things like this year, we just, for the first time are budgeting for things like warming stations and resiliency hubs. Right. Right. And so again, I just go back to this notion that we need to get more proactive with, with our planning. Austin city council does, I would say a pretty good job of reacting to things, reacting mm-hmm. to COVID, reacting to the winter storm, um, reacting to the homelessness crisis. But it's it, the problem with reacting is that you're losing a lot of time. And in, here's the real kicker. You're losing a lot of money because the cost of latency is that by the time you're trying to address homelessness, for example, you're spending a considerable amount of money to buy these, buy, buy land, buy old hotels, things like that, that could have been purchased for far cheaper five, 10, seven you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. And so for me with resilience, it comes down to the city needs to have a very proactive approach um, to saying, hey, these are the kinds of weather-based events we're going to have increasingly. These are the kinds of things that we need to do to invest in our climate resiliency. And then communicating that out to constituents so that we're all as individuals also doing what we can as well, whether that's reducing our carbon emissions, getting rid of cars, um, if that's being more uh, mindful of water use, whatever. But it's hard to go back to the individual individuals and say, hey, we need you to do this and that if the city's not doing all it can as well. Yeah. Um, we're running a little short on time, but I want to make sure they give a chance to maybe talk about one more priority or issue that um, would be important to you if you were elected. So we already talked about housing, some about uh, musicians, live music scene, resiliency, maybe one more thing you want to bring up that you would yeah. really hone in on and focus. Yeah, I mean, equity. I think, you know, Austin, whether it's housing, whether it's mobility, Austin has a very troubled history with equity. Um, and and. And it shows in both I-35 and the divide that that's been in the lack of Black and and Hispanic people and leaders in certain rooms in in West Austin, particularly where I live. Um, And so for me, having sat on two boards for the city, the first place I'm going to start is I will appoint the most inclusive and diverse roster of people to the city boards and commissions, um, because that's work that I'm familiar with. I've done it on nonprofit boards as well. Um, I've been the membership chair of Zach Theater's board for the last two years, and I brought on four African-American board members, four millennials, um, a couple more LGBTQ identifying individuals. So, you know, I'm very focused on inclusion and equity, and I think that's just something that we need at the council level as well. Yeah. Um, Okay, before we close, let's get to know you a little bit better. What's show and tell item for today? Well, uh, you mentioned my wife's a musician, so I wanted to uh-huh. bring her. This is her vinyl. Nice. This is her debut album. Uh, her name is Angela Carey. Um, maybe you've heard her music on, you know, KUT or ACL Radio, and um, she's from Spain. And and here's a kicker. I'm, I'm pretty certain that I would be the only um, city council member who's ever executive produced an album. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, I was there with her in the studios for, across multiple studios while she was recording this and. 
um, you know, introducing her to different people like Adrian Casada from Black Pumas and Terry Lacona uh, from Austin City Limits. And so um, it's it's been a great uh, joy to watch her experience Austin. She's new here. She's pretty new here, three and a half years in. Nice. Um, and the city is just really taken to her as a musician and artist. So couldn't be prouder. And that was Joa Spearman. Next up, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Ben Leffler. I'm here with Ben. We're talking all things city council. Um, let's get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Yeah, I'm a native Austinite, uh, lifelong Democrat running for city council because, you know, everyone deserves access to this city. Um, I feel so lucky to have grown up here in central Austin and that provides so many opportunities. And um, right now we're pricing folks out. My family never could have afforded, uh, afforded to live in this town. And uh, I think we have a ton of opportunity that we're not taking full advantage of to make Austin a truly equitable, accessible and sustainable city for everyone. I want to talk about housing. Obviously, that's the, that's the big issue of this election. Um, you also spent time working with council member Chris Riley, right? And and I when I think about, you know, it's so with when I think about council member Riley, I remember he ran against Kathy Tovo for a city council race years ago. And in my mind, that's like was it was like the quintessential question of Austin's growth. And the two of them represented, I think, pretty different perspectives on, you know, I, I would definitely say Council Member Riley was more in the urbanist camp and wanting to build denser. And Kathy Tovo is a little bit more conservative. Um, what What's kind of your perspective in, in coming into this conversation? And you've seen it, right? You've seen the debate play out over, over these years as well. What do you feel like we can do on housing that we can actually do <laughs> and we'll make a difference because I feel like that's that's been our tension. Yeah, no, I, I think you framed it up pretty well. You know, we were very much aligned with our 2012 Imagine Austin Comprehensive Plan, which imagined, um, you know, compact, connected, complete communities um, where folks could walk or bike or, you know, get around to all the necessary amenities um, within their area. And, you know, that that still is our um, sort of imagine our plan for Austin. And I don't think we've lived up to that very well. And I think in 2014, when Councilmember Riley and Councilmember Tova were, you know, went from at large to into District 9, um, you know, I don't think that some of the issues that we were talking about around housing and affordability were as sort of emergent as they have become over the last mm -hmm. eight years. And so now we're looking at a situation where we've seen, you know, property values rise, rents rise, um, property taxes, you know, follow those valuations rise. And so, you know, whether you uh, own or rent or, you know, are trying to do one or the other, everyone's feeling um, squeezed by these costs in a way that really folks weren't in 2014. Um, and you know, when I hear this every day on the doors, you know, everybody is feeling, you know, the sort of impacts of us not addressing our housing crisis. Um, and that creates a huge opportunity for really taking some steps forward on things um, that we haven't had the sort of political will to do to, to this point. Um, you know, uh, that means, you know, being able to, you know, re take a really hard look at our land development code or look at, you know, compatibility or look at, parking requirements or look at how we're partnering with, you know, other organizations or the private sector or um, Travis County or our permitting process in general, which is broken. You know, you don't ever want to let, uh, you know, a sort of crisis go to waste, as they say in, in politics. And right now we have just a broad consensus across our community that the status quo isn't working and that we need to get a lot more 
aggressive around how we address the housing crisis. Yeah. Do you, do you see any lessons learned from watching kind of the political struggles over over those years? Because this is something where, like you mentioned, we were debating it 10 years ago and talking about it, but it wasn't at crisis level. And then it got to crisis level because we really couldn't, we really as policy-wise didn't do that much about it, or we kind of fought about it as a city for a long time. Has that, yeah, like wh- how, what did you walk away from seeing that? Yeah, I think it's it's somewhat inaccurate and unfortunate that we frame this uh, always as this paradigm between preservation and you know yeah. urbanism because I think that that's a very convenient way to think about it, but it's not really how most people normally think about it. Yeah, um, I I don't think I mean there are certainly people who would describe themselves as an urbanist. Um, I I don't really think that term is very helpful. Um, you know, I don't think that calling somebody a NIMBY is is a very helpful way to approach it either because it's very rational to to care about your neighborhood that you like, right. right? And and to, you know, in certain ways, be a little apprehensive of change. Like that's a very natural feeling to have. And I think it's sort of dehumanizing to take that away from people. Um, so again, I think that in my experience and sort of my theory of the case for this is that, you know, there is a broad consensus of folks that can agree mm-hmm. that, you know, the current rules and the current, you know, sort of incentives in our market are not serving our community effectively. Um, and then we can come together around solutions. And, um, and that's something that I, I don't know that the, the election in 2014 was really framed around housing affordability in the same way that it is now. Like yeah. there was, there, there was obviously different outlooks from, you know, the parties in that election, but what encourages me is that every single conversation we have, yes. <laughs> whether it's district nine, five, whatever, the mayor's race, like everybody's talking about housing as the critical issue. And that creates such an opportunity to make progress on these things. And we've never had an election like that. I mean, when I jumped into this race, early, like not that long ago, you know, less than a year ago, uh, people were telling me, housing advocates were telling me, you can't make this race about housing. It's too divisive. Um, that seems almost crazy to say now, right? Like, yeah, um, because we've all recognized that this is the, you know, sort of fundamental issue for our community. And, and again, if we're talking about it, if that's what, like whoever is elected is going to be elected on a platform of housing to a certain degree. And that creates such an opportunity to, to really address these things. Yeah. I, I want to talk about transportation for a bit. You know, you're running for district nine. That's a huge, you know, that's a district that has the potential to be really transformed by some of our transportation initiatives coming up. We have project connect, which might mean like an entire downtown, almost subway station underground. And and then we have all this conversation around I-35. I know you're in the Cherrywood neighborhood. That's a huge topic there because it could expand into parts of Cherrywood. Um, What's your general approach to some of these transportation projects? If you were elected, what what do you want to be, what do you, what would you want to see happen with Project Connect and I-35? These are huge opportunities to like reconnect, uh, well, connect and reconnect our community, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so for Project Connect, you know, we've been working on passing a rail initiative since the first time I voted in 2000, we lost a rail bond by a couple hundred votes. And, you know, now we, we have this, it's not a bond, which is very fortunate, you know, it's a tax increment. And so um, that gives us an opportunity to build a comprehensive transit system. And much of that will be in District 9, you know, the downtown, you know, subway or whatever exactly that turns out the orange line going right down you know guadalupe and lamar um, connecting to downtown Um, not only is this an opportunity to really create like a spine of our transit system but it's you know an opportunity to build tons of housing that don't need uh, that aren't car dependent that can you know 
be as a connector for better, you know, east-west connectivity with buses, um, really like, you know, housing, transportation and transit and environmental sustainability all come together with a transit system like Project Connect. And it's so exciting. And of course, like implementation, the, you know, it still has to happen. The devil's in the details on these things. But that's the sort of opportunity that we're going to be doing over the you know, next four and eight years of this council term. Yeah. I 30, sorry. No, you can uh, go ahead. To I-35, you know, like I think you hit the nail on the head. Like we live in Cherrywood. Our son goes to daycare at Escalade to Alma, which is on the access road, which is in the you know projected demolition path. Um, I don't know anyone who thinks it's a great idea to expand a highway through a major American city um, at this time. Like we've seen terrible impacts in places like you know Katy when the freeways expanded. We know that empirically, you can't um, you know sort of outbuild congestion. It just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, I think it is unfortunate that we're going against TxDOT, which is an agency that literally exists to build roads. Not right. Do you think the city can fight this at all? Like, do you think there's room for that? I think that I'm very encouraged by, you know, we're, there's been a robust public engagement process. Our neighborhood at Cherrywood Neighborhood Association has been very engaged. Um, you know, we have, you know, Rethink and Reconnect, which are pushing public engagement. Um, you know, there's nothing set in stone yet. And, you know, at this is again an opportunity to really truly um, reconnect the, this whether we're burying the highway you know the full length or building a series of you know caps and stitches um, this is prime you know downtown central you know land that can be reclaimed for parks you know reclaimed for you know housing potentially um, so I, you know, nothing's done yet, you know, yeah. and I think that I'm very, again, like housing, I'm very encouraged that there's a lot of consensus around the fact that like, nobody thinks it's a good idea to have a 21 lane wide highway <laughs> yeah. in the middle of Austin, Texas. Um, so, I mean, that as a, as an advocate, as a citizen, as a, just a resident of Cherrywood and potentially a policymaker, you know, I'm, I'm very interested and engaged and want to continue to push and push and push. And, you know, one thing's for certain, if we don't do, if we don't do anything, you know, we're probably not going to get the outcome that we want. So we just have to yeah. keep, stay on it. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to make sure you have a chance to maybe share one more priority of yours. We talked about transportation and housing. I think those are pretty big general ones for everyone. But if you were elected, what would be another priority of yours that you'd really like to focus on issue wise? Environmental sustainability. So, you know, water is absolutely critical to every community and ours, of course, um, you know, we have, we are fed by the Highland Lakes, uh, you know, that it, we've seen the Colorado River running into some, you know, dry spells north of us. Um, and so, you know, I think the only thing that really potentially can slow Austin's, you know, progress is, is us not having the water for our community. And, you know, we have a great plan called Water Forward that is, you know, a number of initiatives around conservation, reuse, um, you know, ways to to make this water work for us. And Austin has done a good job of securing water rights for the next 100 years, but we're gonna to continue to grow. We lose about as much uh, water out of uh, evaporation out of the lakes as we do consumption. And so how can we you know, be more efficient with that? Um, I worked a lot on environmental issues in Councilman Riley's office, specifically with Austin Energy around um, pushing them for re uh, renewable goals. And so that's another big issue around the environment. You know, can we continue to push our utility to hit those you know, climate equity goals that we've set as a community, reaching, you know, net zero carbon emissions by 2035, getting us out of the uh, plant, which would, you know, require more so local solar and, and um, 
more efficient building use. You know, we use a lot of energy through our buildings. So the environment is absolutely critical. And it's sort of the, the third leg of the stool is sort of my policy, yeah. which is very cl- closely, you know, related to housing and transportation, which can all reinforce each other. Definitely. And then before we close, uh, we're doing our show and tell items, learn a little bit more about our candidates. What's your item today? Kind of go it to me and describe it. Okay. Yeah. So this is a, a painting of our young son, Sonny, that uh, one of our friends did. Uh, he's a little bit older than this now. I think he was a maybe a year old in this got nice chubby cheeks in this picture. <laughs> uh, and shorter hair he has now has really long hair but this is sunny his eyes aren't quite as blue anymore um and then this is a painting that sunny painted for me uh he was just away with my wife and his grandma while i've been campaigning and they sent me a picture that he did so it kind of looks like a tiger it's yellow and green um, <laughs> but he's he just turned two years old in august and you know, he's, uh, he's a handful and a joy. And uh, one of the reasons, you know, I mean, really why I'm doing this, I grew up in Austin and, and I want him to be able to do the same. And that was Ben Leffler. Next, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Linda Guerrero. I'm here with Linda. Let's, let's just get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? All right, I am running for a couple of reasons. One is to foster community values. And another is that my family has a legacy for standing up for equity. And I want to continue that legacy. Um, I've, I've been uh, working in my neighborhood association for over 25 years. I served as a um, uh, executive officer. We have had two major uh, negotiations and I was asked to represent my neighborhood on both those negotiations. We also had a situation where there was a potential take on our Hancock golf course for uh, building housing about eight or nine years ago. So we're sort of always under threat as a, in a sense. So we keep a close watch on what's happening. Then I have been asked by uh, board, uh, been on boards and commissions for the past 20 years. I served on the parks board. I served on the bond oversight commission. You have a lot of environmental experience um, in our community. If you were elected, what would you want to prioritize um, going forward for the council to work on when it comes to environmental issues in particular? One thing that came to my attention was there's something called tree ghosting. And what is happening at these larger developments is that they're being surveyed. Then over the weekend, a heritage tree will completely disappear. And so this is a huge problem because there's something in place. You can mitigate for a heritage tree. You can get approvals depending on if the tree is sick. There's a process that citizens work and residents work so hard putting together so that we could do both. We could protect trees and be able to move forward with major development. <clears throat> so that's really difficult right now that the that illegal cuttings are happening. It's called tree ghosting. So I would really want to bring some attention to that. We also, before I left the Environmental Commission, we uh, put forward the um, Climate Equity Plan. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's to try to get more sustainable buildings. It's to get community input. You know, East Austin has less green infrastructure than West Austin. And we need to look to see how we can start filling that area with green infrastructure, because a lot of times East Austin was zoned for industrial right next to residential. So Mm -hmm. to me, looking and pushing forward that equity plan for the communities and trying to prioritize that would be very significant and important to me. I I want to talk about housing for a little bit. Obviously, this is the big issue on everyone's mind in Austin, affordable housing. Um, If you were elected, what do you feel like city council can be doing differently in order to increase the amount of affordable housing we have in our city, both like subsidized and also just general market rate affordable housing? I think the bonds that are uh, out there floating right now to be passed is a good step, you know, for restricted income housing. But I also believe we need to look at more land trusts so we can bring in houses that people could be in that are families. Because with the mixed use, what happens is that, okay, let's say we're going to do a residential mixed use. 20% of that is allowable to become a short-term rental. So we're at one one point we're saying, okay, we have this need for housing, but to me that should, that percentage should be reduced because if we're really needing housing, we should not be allowing that percentage to go to short-term rentals. Also, AUDs are great. Uh, AUD can, ADUs. ADU, sorry. Yeah. It can be, uh, ADUs can be built in the backyard. However, here's the problem. Like I spoke to a neighbor a couple of weeks back. He doesn't use it because of the taxation. The taxes would be so much that it wasn't worth using it as a rental prop- property. And the ADUs also are being short-term rentals. I don't know if that's something you could look in. You know, part of this, a lot of people say, let's, you know, let's create new policy. My thought is, look, let's look at policy that's not working. Hmm. See how we can make policy better. You know, Mueller's a great example of of a really great development, multi-housing, affordability to a certain extent. It was much so then than now. We need deeper affordability. We need to lower the MFI to at least 60. 80 is almost market, you know? Mm-hmm. And so those are the things that we need to really relook at. And then the other thing that I would like to see is to allow MU, multi-units, to uh, in mixed use that entitlements be upgraded. Like let's say there's already, someone already has the right for commercial. They wouldn't have to do a zoning change. Let's give them the ability to upzone so that they could provide more uh, mixed use. If it's already, yeah, if it's already a zone commercial, change it into multifamily or allow for mixed use, right? Exactly. Give them that. I worked for four years with the other neighborhoods around me. We got some marching orders from um, council and they said, UT needs housing and they need an element of affordability. So for four years, I worked with seven other neighborhoods, the businesses, the students, the, you know, the fraternity guys and gals. 
And we came up with a model where we had a step down, we were able to work with neighborhoods, we were do, able to give like green barriers, and it's turned out to be a great model. So I know it's very possible to continue to create this in our city. You know, we talked about housing, we talked about the environment, you know, real quick, what's like one more priority that if you were elected, you would really want to focus on and spend time on? You know, I fostered the, I started and made the movement to amend the parkland dedication fee. Hmm. One thing that I think would be fabulous is if we could find a permanent funding for parkland so that we're not tied to the city budget. And it might be just a portion of it isn't tied to the city budget. And we could get some other means of a streamline to come in to support our beautiful parks. That is quality of life. That is green infrastructure. That is what we have at least done so well is our park system. However, when I said on the Bond Oversight Commission, the deferred projects, the deferred maintenance is through the roof. Mm -hmm. Got to find another way to come in and support those budgets. Right. And then before we close, let's get to know you a little better. What's your uh, show and tell item for us today? This is my grandmother's plate. And to honor her for all the delicious cookies <laughs> and cakes and, and all the great conversations. Like I can remember when I was a little girl, when I'd go sleep, spend the night with her, she'd wash my hair in rainwater. Wow. <laughs> she had saved in buckets for me. And so to honor her, I have all of her plates um, hanging on my walls. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking at a plate. It's like paint, painted with roses. Very cool. And your family has been in Austin for a long time, right? The the Conley Guerrero uh, Activity Center is named after. Yes. Your, is it your father? Uh-huh. They, they, uh, Mrs. Conley was a Black activist in her community, and my dad was an activist in the Mexican-American community. Council said, let's split the baby. They're both worthy of this recognition. And then later, they named it the Roy G. Lower Colorado Park, and that's also named after my father. Wow. So a, a lot. We've been standing up for what we called injustice around the table. It's now morphed into equity. And that was Linda Guerrero. And last but not least, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Tom Wald. All right, I'm here with Tom. We're, we're talking city council. Let's just go get right into it. Who are you? Why are you running? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Amy. Um, my, my name is Tom Wald. I'm running for Austin City Council in District 9. And the biggest issue on my mind is um, housing affordability. And I've been working on affordability issues and equity and environmental issues for the last 16 years, um, helping to build out our bikeway, sidewalk, and signalize uh, crossing network, a trail network. Um, I have a, you know, been working on this for so long that I, I know all the council members. Um, I know how the processes work. I know that it's not just simply getting a council decision, but that you also need to put your, get your allies in a row. You need to talk with city staff to make sure that you, what you pass the city council actually becomes enacted. Um, I've lived in Austin for 23 years now, been in uh, my neighborhood of Cherrywood uh, since 2005, been active in my neighborhood association, uh, Wheatsville Co-op Board, 
and uh, numerous nonprofits such as Bike Austin, People United for Mobility Action, and my current nonprofit Redline Parkway Initiative, supporting the 32-mile trail through three cities, two counties along the Capital Metro Red Line. Um, of course, beyond housing affordability, mobility is a huge issue. Uh, protecting Austin's values in the face of attacks at the state and federal level. And then, of course, other environmental issues such as closing down the Fayette uh, power plant and uh, public safety, uh, making sure that people of all backgrounds are welcome in Austin. Great. Well, let's let's go into some of those topics. We'll start with housing affordability. That's obviously the big one. Um, what do you feel like we can be doing differently as a city council or that you can bring to the table in order to help with the housing affordability? Is it a new policy you're proposing? Is it doubling down on some initiatives we've started? You know, what does increasing housing affordability in Austin really look like from a policy city council-led's perspective? Yeah, so, and it, you know, I'm not gonna be the only one describing some of these things. So these won't be huge shockers, but I, I do think one thing that is missing is just that simple focus that we need the number of units. We need more housing units overall near opportunity that's near downtown and other job job and education areas. Uh, we also do need to continue to build up income restricted units. Those are units that are available at different income levels. And then of course, subsidized housing as well. But I think oftentimes in these conversations about compatibility and whatnot and neighborhood plans and that sort of thing, we lose sight of the, the big picture that we just, if there are more people who want to live in Austin than ours housing for, then prices will go up. It's pretty simple and it's been repeated thousands of times across the country. So how do we get there? Um, I believe we need to take quick action in 2023. And then there are some things that we need to continue on to build out that full breadth of, of our housing supply um, at different income levels. So in 2023, immediately a few things we can do is we can expand affordability and lock. That's uh, where the city gives different bonuses, uh, say height bonuses, density bonuses, and then in exchange, the builder or the homeowner uh, allows for um, income restricted units. And these can be for families, these can be for single people. But but expanding on that, so we are end up we end up producing more units through that that mechanism. Uh, one of the things that would be pretty quick to see results, meaning within a year or two, is um, eliminating car parking requirements. A lot of people don't drive in Austin. Um, a fun fact is that probably about a third of the population either cannot drive or doesn't have access to a car and maybe closer to 50%. It's a hard number to pin down, but a lot of people just simply can't drive. Um, but I think the, the important thing to recognize is that it's a huge expense. Um, it's something that cuts into affordability with every single uh, home. It, it cuts into affordability even for the, the groceries you buy. So, because it costs um, money to build those parking spaces. More land has to be bought. It increases the, the cost of construction, right? That's why? All of that, okay. yeah. And then in addition for housing, um, the more, more, for many properties, just by requiring par car parking, we simply can't produce those units given the current other entitlements such as the height and whatnot. So, you know, a sixplex can't possibly be built because it would require 12 parking car parking mm. spaces. So it would do, it would both reduce the cost and allow for more housing. We, of course, there's other things that require multi-jurisdictional um, coordination and just simply multi-departmental coordination, such as building on public land. We've banked up a lot of public land. We need to make the most of that as well. I think the thing that I uniquely offer to the table is that I'm the only pro-housing candidate who has extensive experience working on local issues and understanding the politics. And that, that, was, that was the biggest motivation for me getting into the race. I wanted to make sure that District 9 voters had the option to choose someone who has on the ground year after year experience working in this just 
messy area of city politics. And that's that's what I've been doing and haven't stopped for a lot since 2006. Yeah, you know, you you mentioned that. And, and when I think of you, I think of you really as a transportation guy, you know, housing's connected to a lot of ways, but you've done a ton of stuff in our community around transportation. You touched on some of those already, but do you want to hit on some of those and then talk about how you'd like to bring that that transportation experience into City Hall, especially, you know, it seems like you have a lot of experience on like more of our active and alternative transportation modes, right? Things like yeah. public transit, things like bikes and sidewalks and um, and that kind of thing. Can you talk more about that? Sure. So yeah, talking about my mobility experience, um, you know, I, I gave the highlights, uh, more bikeways, especially protected bikeways, sidewalks, those mid-block signal crossings. Uh, we're seeing some new ones on Airport Boulevard at a really um, unsafe hotspot. Um, yeah. and we have had over a hundred now built. So that's, that's terrific. Um, into the future, um, you know, it should be second nature for people to be able to get around Austin and the Austin Metro without a car. And that doesn't just mean biking, walking, but it means also transit, of course, too. So we need to absolutely build out our project connect investment. But the other thing that's oftentimes forgotten is not, it's not quite as like news, you know, out there in the news is really, we need to have a better bus system. Um, and that includes, ensuring that buses generally don't have to stop at traffic lights and that they have um, dedicated right of way in places where there's congestion. And we can really expand on it and we will need to in order to make sure that people can get to their daily needs. So those are huge things. Um, and I could go into that more. I mean, I think expanding on our yeah. bike system is gonna be huge. Um, yeah, is that, well, and it, it, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I'm curious. It makes me think about like so, some of these some of these issues around alternative transit, it's like in Austin, I think we are doing a really good job or like, especially we've, we've made a lot of leaps and bounds, right? Like we're building a lot more bike lanes, things like that. But, you know, uh, it's like, sometimes I, I ride my bike into downtown and it's like, even there's still, still so many cars on the lane and there's people coming out everywhere. And it's like, this still doesn't feel that safe. Like, are we, is there more we can, it feels like the kind of thing we started to prioritize, but maybe we haven't really thought about it super, super seriously as true transportation. Like we've started to, <laughs> but I'm yeah. sure there's a lot more we could do. And as someone who, you know, I know is a big bike advocate and, and things like that. Yeah. I'd love to, like, what more do you think we could really do to take it to the next level beyond um, what we've been doing in the past? Right. So we do have a huge investment from the 2020 bond election uh, for active transportation, walking, biking, and just general road safety. As that gets built out, more people will have access to biking and to walking. Um, I think one of the things that's missing, there's a number of things that are missing. So part of it is that um, the network is sporadic. There's a lot of breaks yeah. in it. And so I think that that dissuades a lot of people from using it. There is a decent network, but you kind of have to be an expert to know how to mm -hmm. get to where you need to go. And it only serves certain parts of town well. District 9 is fairly well served, but there are exceptions. South First, you can't, it's not really a safe mm -hmm. place. Um, expanding bike share is a huge one. Um, one of the things is a lot of people who live in multifamily complexes don't have a safe place to store an electric bike, an e-bike. Mm -hmm. So they, that's, um, a real missing opportunity um, because people, a lot of people can't carry an e-bike up to their second floor. And so right, it's not practical. Yeah. Um, I mean, beyond that, there's a lot of integration. So making a more coherent integration between walking and biking and transit, but especially biking to transit. Um, 95, I think it's between 95 and 99% of the city is accessible to biking and transit when you combine the two. And that can be really powerful. 
So I think part of it is just making it connected. And then, yeah, I, I highlighted e-bikes, but I think e-bikes are huge. And I think that there's um, there's ways the council member Paige Ellis actually um, uh, put forward the resolution in June to expand the rebate and look for other options to make it more accessible for people to have e-bikes. Because I think that that's one of the missing things. In the summer, it's not as practical for people to go when they when it, when they're on heat. And then I think there there are a lot of people who live near hills, and there's just not really they're not in a position to necessarily bike everywhere they need to go. So expanding that. Um, I mean, I can get more wonky on this if you want. I mean, I, one other thing I'll mention before going on to to cars is that um, that our city depart our, our city staff isn't even totally bought into to biking or walking, to be frank. And so. We'll see a lot of temporary closures, construction closures. There was a policy put on the books eight years ago. City staff doesn't doesn't they don't they don't follow it, you know. And and there's a not enough of a culture of this is that, that that we should have a multimodal city. And when I say multimodal, I mean that we should have a city where you can get around by something other than the car. That you have the freedom to choose whether or not you go to buy a car. Right now, we don't have we don't truly have the freedom to do that in our city. Yeah, that's so, so funny you mentioned that. I can't tell you how many times I've been riding a bike, like, and then it'll, the bike lane will just be closed randomly and you have nowhere to go besides like mm -hmm. rushing into traffic where yep. there's a ton of cars driving so fast. Okay. And you were saying something else about cars. Yeah. The other thing is for people who are driving, um, there's some low hanging fruit in that when you drive, you really should be able to predictably find a car parking spot. If you've taken that trip, you should be able to find a car parking spot. And that car parking spot might be $3 an hour, it might be 50 cents, it might be free. But the deal is that you should be able to park. You shouldn't have a question of just not being able to find car parking. And that includes all parts of town, whether that's downtown or South Congress. And I believe the city can take a stronger role in that. Um, that's a that's a real win-win. And th that funding can actually be used for that last half mile connection from people walking from their car to the business or whatever they're going to. Okay, so before we close, let's get to your show and tell item. Uh, what did sure. you bring for us today? Well, it seems so obvious that I just didn't want to do it. And I, I'll show it to you now. Um, it's a bike helmet. Um, yeah. You know, it is not my, I'm not a one person uh, candidate, but I, but I do think that people should recognize that it has been an important part of the work I've done. Our city was much different 15 years ago, 16 years ago. It was controversial to support bicycling then chamber of commerce did not support it now they're they're definitely a supporter just an example and i want to take that to the to housing affordability so that's why i showed this i think right now housing affordability is a, it's a hot topic it's the solutions we need to take are controversial because it will be change but it's important change and i think the majority of people want that change and that was tom wald and there is one other candidate in this race kim olson but she did not respond to our interview request if you want to learn more about all of the candidates running, be sure to follow our Instagram page because we'll be publishing an election guide just for District 9. Also, if you click on the show notes for this episode, you can find links to all of the candidates' websites. And that's pretty much our show for today. But stay tuned because we'll be publishing episodes on all of the city council elections in the coming weeks. Oh, and don't forget to vote! <laughs>